I had a little bitty gospel that didn't fully understand the role of God's grace and of union with Christ as it relates to sanctification. I viewed it much in the same way that he just described there, that, that I was saved by God's grace, but in a sense, though I would never admit it, but I did live this way, I stay saved by my own holiness. I keep God pleased with me by my own holiness. That there were times when I would feel on any given day that my position before God was compromised because of my lack of holiness. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, provides a helpful illustration. He just says, let me, let me play out a couple of, of scenarios for you. You wake up one day before the alarm goes off and you get up and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and you go sit down at the table and you brew your coffee and you get extra time reading your Bible. You're feeling good walking out the door. You get in the car. You get to work. You're there early. You're productive all day. On the way out, your boss gives you an attaboy, says, I'm really eyeing you for the next promotion. You're feeling really great about yourself. You drive down the highway, pull over to get gas, and as you're getting gas, the guy next to you uh, strikes up a conversation and you realize that you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Will God be pleased to use you in that moment? Okay, scenario two. You oversleep, you don't hear the alarm in the morning, you wake up, you don't get any time in the word, you barely get a cup of coffee, you jump in your car, you're, you hit traffic on the way, you end up late to work, you get scolded by your boss, nothing goes well all day, it was one disaster after another, you get back in your car after work and on the way home feeling utterly exhausted, utterly dejected, totally self-condemning because of your own failures throughout the day, you pull over to get gas, the guy in the pump next to you strikes up a conversation and you have an opportunity to share the gospel. Do you think, if you were just to consider yourself realistically, that God would be more pleased to use you on one day versus the other? Of course, what Jerry Bridges is really getting at is the question of how we, on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, consider our own position before God. And how do we consider our position before God in relationship to our growth or sometimes the lack thereof in holiness when we see sin in our own lives? Indwelling sin that just doesn't seem to go away. It's so stubborn. That's what we're going to be discussing tonight on the doctrine of sanctification. If you have your confessions, I would encourage you to go ahead and open up to chapter 13. Last week, we were introduced to the doctrines of justification and adoption. If you put your finger right there on chapter 13 of sanctification, go to the very beginning of your confession and look at the table of contents. There's a few things that I want to point out to you. The way that it's organized. The confession is not organized in a traditional order of salvation. It's organized slightly differently. It's organized first, notice this, Effectual calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. All four of these are God's work in us and for us and to us. It's what we might call a monopluralistic work of God. It's his work. 
initiating, doing the heavy lifting. But then notice beginning in 15, 16, 17, and 18, now we have four more articles logically following God's great work of salvation in us that now begin to address our own responsibilities. And so it's organized primarily around God's monopluralistic work, that is, of his unilateral, monergistic work to us in Christ before it ever gets to our responsibilities in response to that grace to produce good works and to persevere in this life. And that's on purpose because that's the way that the Christian life is. When you look at many of the New Testament epistles, for instance, Romans chapter 6, or say like the book of Romans, or Ephesians, it always starts off with what we would call indicatives, those things which are true. And those things are then followed by imperatives. That is what we do. And that's the way that it is in the Christian life, that indicatives always precede imperatives, such that imperatives are rooted in, strengthened by, informed by, fueled by, produced by, the truths of the indicatives primarily concerning the gospel. Well, this is going to be especially important in sanctification because I imagine that some of us, if you would have asked me, where does sanctification belong? Is it God's work or our work? I probably would have put it a little bit lower in the table of contents. But this is the genius of Reformed theology and rightly understanding the scriptures, specifically on the doctrine of justification. It rightly orders sanctification, prioritizing it first as a work of God in us. And that's what I want you to see. Let's begin there in paragraph one of chapter 13. And as we do, I want you to notice, really there's two categories, there's three paragraphs that we can break up into two parts. The first is just going to be a general definition of sanctification. That's what we're going to see in the first paragraph. We're going to see it defined positionally, and we're going to see it defined progressively. That is either definitively, same as positionally, or progressively. But we're also going to see in paragraphs two and three, sanctification defined in our experience, that it is on the one hand in paragraph two, imperfect in this life, We are at a continual war, and yet in the context of this war, paragraph three, we win. Sin doesn't ultimately have dominion over us, and we grow. And so we want to consider these things. We want to consider the scriptures. So we want to have your Bibles next to you, even as we consider the the confession. Chapter 13, beginning in verse one, or paragraph one. Those who are united in Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. 
At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Take note of that very last statement. No one will see the Lord without holiness. Just quoting Hebrews 12, 4. You see that, or 14 rather, you see that there in the, in the footnotes. If you don't have a proper understanding of justification and sanctification and how they relate not only to us, but to Christ, then that will be a fearful statement. No one will see the Lord without holiness. How can sinners ever hope to see the Lord? Well, that's the good news in that opening statement. Notice there is a threefold application positionally. So you may have heard, for instance, that sanctification is a progressive doctrine. Justification is positional. It is what's true in us, once and for all, unchanging, a declaration of righteousness in Christ. But sanctification, on the other hand, is progressive. And that's true, but it's only partly true. That before we consider sanctification as being progressive, notice the confession prioritizes sanctification as being positional or Definitive. That is, it defines us. This is what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 1 over the course of the last few weeks on Sundays. Just turn there with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 4, I give, or rather in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ, called to be holy together, or saints together. But notice that the key phrase here in verse 2 is, in Christ. That's where we locate our sanctification. That is, those who have been set apart in Christ for holiness. And so what Paul is referring to here in verse 2 is not ultimately to those who are progressively becoming more holy in Christ. He's saying to those who are in Christ and by virtue of being in Christ are holy, are sanctified. It's what we see in verse 30 further on down in chapter 1. That because of him, that is the one who called you effectually, you are in Christ Jesus. So what are we talking about when we use language like in Christ? In Christ Jesus. We're talking about union with Christ. That it's not Christ outside of me. It is me in Christ. And all that is his is now mine. And I've come to possess it through the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Such that I can no more be separated from Christ than Christ can be separated from me. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God. Remember on Sunday, we said, well, what is that wisdom? Further on down, chapter 2, verse 12, it is the understanding of the things freely given to us by God. It's to understand the content of the gospel in Christ. That in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, what is the wisdom that's being talked about here? It's not mere intellectual knowledge. It is an intimate, personal, and real knowledge 
of the glories and the benefits of salvation. Verse 30, righteousness and sanctification. If you and I are going to rightly understand the doctrine of sanctification, it is crucial that we do not begin here with the progressive nature of sanctification. It is crucial that we begin here on the positional nature of sanctification. Where can we get off saying that our sanctification that is being called by God to live holy lives and to be holy for him and in Christ, how can this be true? And the answer is, as we see in the opening line, union with Christ. This is really key. When you and I are brought by the new hearts given to us by the Spirit through regeneration, called by God in the gospel to believe in Christ, we are, through the power of the Holy Spirit, united to Him. We are in Christ. And by virtue of being in Christ, He now becomes our righteousness, that is justification, But notice, our sanctification is not ultimately and merely progressive. Well, the more that we think about our justification, the more we're sanctified. The more that we remember the fact that we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone, the more holy we become. Now, that may be true, but this is really where the priority lies. That because you and I are united in Christ, we are not only justified, but we are also sanctified. It's what... Reformed theologians have referred to as the twin graces of union with Christ. And the reason that this is so important is because it ensures your sanctification. What it also means is that your justification is in no way ever, at any point whatsoever, in jeopardy because of your sanctification. If both your justification and your sanctification are yours positionally, definitively, because you are in Christ, then you can no more not be sanctified than you are not justified because 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is both our righteousness and our sanctification. We are in Christ Jesus, and he is the fount of all of the blessings and the benefits of salvation. Does that make sense? Too many Christians live with their assurance. They want to be assured of their justification based principally on the progress of their sanctification. And is it any wonder then that you've got a bunch of Christians running around with little assurance full of insecurity and anxiety about their salvation in the same way that I was for so many years? The, the key that unlocks the glory of the gospel and sanctification is union with Christ. So it's no wonder then that the, that the confession begins here. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called, <laughs> regenerated. Whose work is that? God's work, God's work, God's work. 
They have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. And what is the result of this positional, what's its effect of its application? Once you are in Christ, why is sanctification positional and not merely progressive? Because in Christ, the very power and dominion of sin has been broken once and for all. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Romans chapter 6. Verse 14. Beginning all the way up in verse 12, rather. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Notice that language of reigning is the language of ruling, of having power over you, of having dominion over you. In other words, don't let it enslave you. When you're a slave to something and the thing that owns you or has dominion over you tells you to do something, you cannot tell it no. Paul here says, do not let sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? What is the definitive or positional reality that informs his command here in verse 12? He says, don't present your members as sin for instruments to unrighteousness, but rather present your instruments or present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Why? Because in verse 14, sin has no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but you are under grace. Why is there no dominion over you? Well, let's read Romans 6 backwards. Sin has no dominion over you. Why? Because according to verse 4, you were buried with Christ, you died with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, so therefore whatever's true of Christ is also true of you, glancing down at verse 9. So we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, and also you having been raised with him, will never die again. Death, that is the consequence and proof of sin, no longer has what over him? Dominion. What is Paul saying? If you are in Christ then the very power of sin, the dominion of sin has been destroyed once and for all by his resurrection from the dead. If you are in Christ, your sanctification is guaranteed. It is positional. You will grow in holiness if you are in Christ. It will pop its head out in your life in various kinds of fruit. Not because of your own effort, but because of the grace of Christ in whom you have been united. You've been united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Christ has died and been raised, so therefore death has no dominion over you. Therefore, do not let sin have dominion over you. In other words, it doesn't own you anymore. You can tell it no. This is the glorious reality of union with Christ. That by virtue of union with Christ, two great confidences come to us. And I'm stealing this from Brian Chapel, but it's really helpful. That in Christ, you and I have 
a new standing legally before God. You're not under law, but you're under grace. But also in Christ, you have a new ability. You have a new standing and a new ability. And this new standing and this new ability can no more change than Christ can change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have been united to him. And so you can no more lose your standing than you can lose your ability to say no to sin. Why? Because its dominion has been broken. You're in Christ. Is that good news? That's really good news. And I sit there and I think, how did I go so many years in my Christian life and not know anything about that? Saved by grace through faith, but running on a treadmill every day to keep God happy with me. You know who I was. I was like those bewitched Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at this. Galatians chapter 3. I'm just doing a little bit more preaching tonight than normal. I hope you don't mind. Paul says, you foolish Galatians. <laughs> Ever so blunt. Who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell over you? He says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's not saying that they were all there, present witnesses of Christ's actual crucifixion. It was that in his life and ministry, through the proclamation of the gospel, Christ crucified had come to them. And so he asked them a question. In light of this gospel that they had believed, he says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law, by hearing by faith? He throws them a softball. If you were to stand before Christ and you were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Was it by works of the law, hearing by faith? Well, it's by hearing by faith. Easy answer, okay. But he doesn't stop there. Well, then are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Having begun by the Spirit, it assumes in that phrase that they know the answer to verse two. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? No, 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 Paul, we begun by the Spirit. Okay, well then why are you acting like fools having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did God save you and then just leave you to your own devices, your own strength and your own wisdom to stay saved until Christ comes again? This was the legalism that had creeped into the church you may have come in by Christ, but you stay in by obedience to the law. Paul is going, no, 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 no. I just said to you that you and me, we have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Beloved, if there's anything that I can just drive home, if there's any one big thing that you walk away with tonight, even as we get to the rest of the confession, it's this. It's the reality of your positional sanctification in Christ, that you have been set apart for holiness in Him. And though you may not see in your own life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, the very holiness of Christ just oozing from your pores, <laughs> you are holy in Christ. God is committed to your sanctification in Christ. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion 
at the day of Christ Jesus because you're in him. Do you understand now why sanctification is not in the our work portion of the confession, but is in God's work for us in Christ portion of the confession? This means that whatever sanctification comes about by the Spirit and the Word due to our own work, that is, our diligence in reading and praying and gathering with this church and so on and so forth, is ultimately the fruit of God's work in us through His means to produce the very life of Christ, the very same Christ in whom we've been united. And so it is, first of all, when we're defining it, positional. You've been united to Christ, and as a result, the dominion, the whole body of sin has been destroyed. But notice, it's also progressive. It's not merely positional, meaning that you should be growing in holiness on account of this positional reality. Notice its application in the confession. It says, they are also further sanctified, really and personally. Really is just another word for positionally. Definitively. It's what we just talked about. But also, personally, they see its effects in their own life. And notice whose power it is. Through the same power, by His Word and His Spirit. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your Word. Your Word is truth. What is the means that God uses to sanctify those who are sanctified in Christ? It's His Word. And it is his word by his spirit. Go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. Beginning in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What he's saying now is that in light of the gospel, the fact that you've been united to Christ, that Christ is building you up along with every other believer into a holy temple in which he himself will dwell through his spirit, you are now being strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What the confession is doing is really just taking these disparate verses like John 17, 17 and Ephesians 3 and coupling them together to say that we are not only positionally but progressively sanctified, but it is all by the Spirit's power through the Word of God at work in us. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is not the fruit of your really diligent quiet times and of your own white-knuckled efforts, those things are the fruit of the what? Spirit. It's His work in you. And look at its effect. The various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. That's just Galatians 5.24 that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened, becoming, remember, you and I have been brought from death into life. It's saying that more and more of that deathness is passing away in the enlivening work of the Spirit as we are in Christ is strengthening us. Notice this, in all saving graces, so that, here's the purpose, 
the caboose. It's not the engine. It's what's following. The work of the Spirit, enlivening, strengthening, causing us to enjoy and to rest in all saving graces. Here's the result, that you practice true holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. How will you attain to the holiness by which you will see the Lord? God will do the work in you, in Christ, through His Spirit, by His Word. It is a work of God that you and I receive by faith. That is foundational for a biblical understanding of sanctification. And if I may be so bold, it is fundamental and essential for your own assurance as a believer. Because the minute that you start measuring your assurance and your justification on your perceived progress and your sanctification, your justification will appear on any given moment to be on shaky ground. Am I really a Christian? This is why we don't ultimately look first and foremost to the fruit of our sanctification in our lives to be assured. Though that may be one aspect, one thing that we look at. No, the primary thing that we look at to be assured of our sanctification is not fruit, but our Savior. The one to whom we have been united in the very Spirit by which He sanctifies us through His Word. Well, now that we've laid a foundation, we can fly pretty quickly to the things that you all know are true in your own experience. Look at paragraph 2. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person. In other words, Christ in His incarnation became a whole person, true humanity, man, very man, so that no aspect of your humanity would go unredeemed. Every part of you, to the extent that Christ shared in our own flesh and blood, is being sanctified in Him so that no part of us, soul or body in the way that we use it, is untouched by God's work of sanctification. But notice in what it says in the next clause, but it is never completed in this life. Tell me if you can relate to this. Some corruption remains in every part. So sanctification extends to every part, and there's corruption in every part. What happens when you have the work of the Spirit and the works of the flesh colliding in every part of your being? It arises a continual and irreconcilable war. That language of war is the language that's found in 1 Peter 2.11. Just look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, that is, the corruption that remains in every part which wage war against your soul. 
There is a war on this side of the resurrection going on in you. It might be like, for instance, a war being won, but there are still battles and skirmishes all over the place in your person as sin, Satan, and death go down swinging on this side of the resurrection to discourage you, to disqualify you, But notice, beginning of paragraph three, in this war, the context of this ongoing progressive sanctification of our experience of sanctification is warfare of the deeds of the flesh, and the work of the spirit colliding in our persons. In this war, the context of the Christian life, the remaining corruption may prevail greatly Key phrase, for a time. Have you ever stopped to consider when you look at sin in your life and it just feels like sin is winning? Negative emotions are winning. Sinful attitudes and behavior are winning. And it's gaining ground and it's pushing back what seem to be all of the inner forces of holiness that you have. But notice this next phrase, it's so full of hope. And remember, it's rooted in that first, phrase, that first sentence of chapter one of those united to Christ, yet through the continual, ongoing, never-ending, never-stopping, bottomless supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the very same Christ in whom you've been united, the regenerate part overcomes. Isn't that awesome? This is the normal experience of the Christian life. It's to be in a pugilist's ring, boxing, empowered by the Spirit, sin coming at you, flurrying, blinding you, beating you down. It seems almost as if you're going to lose. And then you continually catch a second wind and you fight back and you knock it out, and you knock it down over and over again. And so it will be until Christ returns. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting, that's the progressive nature. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, it just means you're perfectible. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God, that's the context, by faith in his gospel, fearing God, clinging to his word, all of which he strengthens you to do by the spirit of Christ as you are now united in Christ. And as a result, two things come. Notice what this growing in grace looks like. It looks like, first of all, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And it looks secondly like pursuing a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. You and I, the work of the Spirit, though it may seem faint at times, though it may seem like sin is all-powerful, it's not. Because you are in Christ by faith. Though it may seem to overcome you for a season, it cannot win. 
Not merely that it will not win, it cannot win. Why? Because it has no dominion over you. Because you're in Christ. <laughs> you can say no anytime you want. And God has given you all of the resources that you need in Christ to do just that. Beginning with the empowering, enlivening work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who then uses the Word of God as it's preached and prayed and sung and read. The very Word of Christ dwelling in our hearts richly to bring about His work in us. You wonder, you know, when we begin our time and we look forward to God speaking to us from His Word in the call to worship, why do we pray, God, use Your Word to do Your work by Your Spirit in us? It's because of His promise of sanctification. He has appointed both the ends that you and I will be presented holy before God, Ephesians 1, in Christ. And he will make you holy because he's also appointed the means to the end. And so sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, which used to be a boogeyman to me, a point of discouragement, is now to me because of the doctrine that we've just considered and because of all the doctrines that it's connected to has come to be a great comfort to me. It's not something that ultimately gives me insecurity but leads me to greater security because it leads me to Christ who is the very wisdom of God, our righteousness and our sanctification. It's all in Christ. You're lacking in nothing. I want to read you one more section from Brian Chapel because it's just so good. If we had eight hours, I'd read the whole book for you. I brought the wrong copy. gives this illustration. He says, a pastor tells of the time that a daughter brought home a chocolate teddy bear from a gift exchange at her school. The next day, the girl's mother opened the door of her daughter's bedroom only to discover her three-year-old son was there. He'd been caught red-handed, chomping down his sister's chocolate teddy bear. The boy backed against the wall like a cornered criminal, knowing that there was no hiding his guilt or his chocolate-smeared hands and cheeks and he immediately began to sob his confession. The mother told him that despite his tears, he would still have to tell his sister what he had done when she got home from school. The afternoon was torture for the little boy as each passing minute seemed like an hour of wondering how his sister would react to his crime. And when his sister finally came home, the boy ran to the door. The anxiety that had been building all day behind the dam of his guilt burst from him in a torrent of tears and confession, and he cried, Sally, I'm so sorry, I ate your teddy bear. He was a sorry sight, standing there sobbing in his guilt. Blessedly, the one to whom he confessed was the kind of big sister who was always looking for a chance to love her little brother. So she took him in her arms and kissed him and said, it's okay, Johnny, I will love you anyway and always. And though he was still crying, the little boy began to giggle. 
Tears were still running down his cheeks for his shame. And yet at the same time, he was laughing for joy. With a vigor that made, with a vigor made more strong by the joy of the tears made deep, he hugged his sister with all his strength. And he says, this is a wonderful picture of every Christian who rightly perceives the nature of God's grace. That when we face the reality and the seriousness of our sin, we're rightly broken to the point of tears. This degree of desperation only makes our joy more deep, however, when we realize that our God is still willing to say, do not despair, child. I will still love you anyway and always. The love and gratitude that such a gracious pardon generates then becomes the motive for embracing our Lord and his purposes with all the strength of our being. And like a healed leper who fell down at Jesus' feet with a zeal made strong by gratitude, our thanksgiving for spiritual deliverance powerfully moves us to honor Christ with our lives. That's the joy that beacons through tears of repentance moves us to new and more empowered obedience. In such renewed service, we discover the truth of the biblical principle that says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Where is it that you and I come to be reminded of the Father's great love for us such that we would be strengthened in it and by it in our sanctification? It's in Christ. that he has loved us with a great love. Isn't that Paul's language? Listen to Ephesians chapter two. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. We are his poema, his poem, his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. How many times does he have to say it? Four good works. That's what Ryan's going to be teaching on in a couple weeks. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where do the good works come from? Where does sanctification come from? Where does holiness come from? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, where we find and joy and experience the great love with which God has loved us. It's God's work in us. Isn't that amazing? 
Have you ever thought about sanctification that way? Or have you just kind of thought about it as your own white-knuckled effort to prove today, again, that you're still a Christian? Maybe today we might think about it a little bit differently that causes us to rejoice in Christ. Let me pray, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Father, I thank you for this time together, for being able to talk about this glorious doctrine and of your great work for us and to us and in us through Christ and by your Spirit. God, I pray that you would grow us in assurance, not because of any evidence that we see in our sanctification on any given moment, but rather our assurance would ultimately be in Christ and that we would rest in him trusting you to do all that you said you would do in us and for us by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.